thinking about today, you've already made hundreds of decisions up to this point. When to get up, what you were going to do to get ready, whether you're going to brush your teeth before you brush your hair, you're going to brush your hair before you brush your teeth, which turns you were going to make on the way here. You've made hundreds of decisions that have placed you in the very seat that you're sitting right now. In fact, studies show that on average, the average U.S. citizen, American citizen, will make about 5,000 decisions in a day. So today you'll make about 5,000 decisions, and we'd like to think that we're good at making decisions, wouldn't we? Well, we know that a lot of people make bad decisions. I was reading just this week about a decision uh, a child made. He was a nine-year-old boy. He found some money in the couch at his house, and he went out and bought candy. The money happened to be the family's savings account, and they were hiding it in their couch. $4,000. He went out and bought $4,000 worth of candy. Now, the good decision that he made is he shared it with his friends. What I try to imagine is what Dad felt like when he looked in the couch and the money was gone. It was not a great decision, probably, to hide the money in the couch in the first place. I read about a business decision this week. There was a company back in 2003 named Excite. It was a search engine company at the time. I don't know if you've heard that. It seems like an ancient world in the dot-com world and the internet world. But Excite had an opportunity to buy another small company. Maybe you've heard of Google. I don't know if you've heard of them before or not. Uh, But Google at the time approached Excite and offered the sale of their company for a million dollars. Excite said no. And so they came back and said, okay, we'll lower the price to $750,000. And Excite still said no and did not purchase Google, which is now worth over $180 million today. I bet you they look back on that decision and think, that wasn't the best decision that we've ever made. And you can go through and find bad decisions. You just do internet search type in bad decisions or worse decisions, military decisions, historic decisions, business decisions. And then you've got people's personal decisions. <laughs> I look at this, sometimes decisions that people make and I think, how could they possibly do that? Like back at the election, I saw a guy who was deciding what he was going to do with his face. And so he auctioned off a space on his face on eBay for somebody to put something, and someone paid $15,000 to put on his face the logo of their favorite candidate. Now, if you remember back in November how the election was working, you know, some people love Obama, some people love Romney. Well, somebody loved Romney, put it on this guy's face. That didn't work out so well, did it? I look back at that and think, now that wasn't the best decision that's ever been made. And we can look at other people's decisions and think, certainly I'm a better decision maker than that. Like if I were running Excite, or I wouldn't hide my money in the couch, or I wouldn't put a tattoo of a candidate who lost on my face. We look at that and think that we're good decision makers, but are we? And I'll tell you the truth, you're not. And neither am I. We're all bad decision makers. Historically, it's been proven. You go back to the very first people, Adam and Eve in the garden, and they've got a decision. Think about this decision. You can eat of a piece of fruit, you'll be hungry in a couple minutes afterwards, or you can have intimate relationship with the almighty God who created you and loves you and wants to know you personally. Which one do you pick? Fruit? Almighty God. Where'd you go? And then she picked the fruit. And you think, who would do that? You know who would do that? We would. We all do. Every one of us does it. The Bible says, for all sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. We all choose sin over God. So it's not just that we love something more than God. It's not just that we thought the fruit was better than God. But you know what at the root of that decision is? Is that we think that we're good decision makers apart from God. And every day we'll make 5,000 decisions. As you think about your decisions this year, you probably have some big ones ahead of you. What decisions do you have to make in 2013? I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm going to ask you to write down the answer to that, whether it's on your phone or your iPad or just on the bulletin that you got on the way in. Would you write down the answer? And this is for your sake. I'm not going to ask you to turn this in. 
But what are some decisions you know you're going to have to make in 2013? Probably some big ones that you would think about. Maybe it has to do with school. Maybe it has to do with major. Perhaps it has to do with relationship, who you're going to ask out on a date, whether you're going to date. Maybe it's a marriage, uh, perhaps a, a business thing or your career, uh, whether you'd move here. Some of you might be watching online and you decided whether to move to North Carolina. You decided where you'd go to church. Some of you might decide to move from North Carolina to somewhere else. And how do you make those decisions? What decisions will you make? And I just want you to write down for your sake. And like I said, I'm not going to ask you to turn it in. But I'll refer back to it a couple times throughout the message. What decisions in 2013 are you going to have to make? And as you think about your decisions, let me ask you not just what do you think the outcome is going to be, but what's the process you're going to go through in making those decisions? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about godly decision making. And I want you to think about what it is that you have to decide. Where you're going to go, who it's going to be, whatever job stuff, financial stuff, exercise stuff, whatever your thing is. But what process are you going to go through? Because oftentimes the process is just as important as the decision that you ultimately make. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, picking up where we left off last week. Acts chapter 1, we stopped in verse 8, so we'll pick up in verse 9 today. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we'll start reading in verse 9. And if you remember last week where we were at, we began this series we're calling Movement. And we talked about what is a movement. We've used that word for lots of stuff throughout history, anti-slavery movement, freedom movements, equal rights movements, women's rights movements, all kinds of movements out there. And we said what we're talking about when we talk about Christianity as a movement is it's a move of God where a group of people gather around a common belief. And the common belief for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God didn't just leave heaven and come to earth, but he left for you and for me so that we could be reconciled to him through right relationship based on the death that he died on the cross and the resurrection that he rose and defeated death. He offers you a gift of life. And you can have a relationship with him. That's the most important decision anyone ever makes. And if you need to make that decision, you can trust Christ as your savior even today. You can acknowledge it on your connection card. Just confess your sin and ask him to be your savior. But once you make that decision, you become part of this movement. It's people that live in radical obedience to God as a result of this common belief that we have. It's called the church. And we talked about last week how the church is the one organization in the world that has the promise the gates of hell will not prevail against. So it's Christ's bride, how he loves the church, how he died for the church. And when you bow your knee to Jesus Christ, you become a part of the church. And then we talked about how every believer has a part in the church. Not just that you're under this umbrella of this name, of this movement, of this organization called the church, but that you have a role to play. That you're not the director, you're not the star of the story, but you are a witness. You're a proclaimer, a testifier, a witness to the one who is the star, to Jesus Christ. And Jesus had told us that in verse 8, that's where we left off last week, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in your world, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the outermost parts of the world, ultimately, that the gospel would go everywhere, a worldwide evangelization, and it would happen through you and through me. It's God's plan, the church plan A, there's no plan B. And he says that to his disciples, these 11 guys. And then you know what happens after that? Peace, I'm out. Jesus takes off. He ascends into heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud and he disappears. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he says some pretty important words here in verse 8. He's saying this is generally speaking the role that every believer has. Now everybody's got unique gifts, unique experiences, unique place in life, all that stuff. But generally speaking, the role we all have are witnesses. Now, this isn't the last time, or this is the last time. It's not the only time he said this, though. And we know how important this was. It's not like they missed what was happening because of this dramatic experience, because Jesus said this over and over again in these 40 days he's been appearing to them during the resurrection. It's like almost a broken record. It's becoming redundant. Now, he says it in different words, in different versions. 
at the end of every gospel, you get a commission that's basically Acts 1-8. The most popular ones in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, therefore go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always. Through my Spirit, through the Holy Spirit that he promises is going to come, he'll be with us always. And Mark, in Mark chapter 16, he says just simply, go preach the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. You can be reconciled to God, to all of creation. Tell everybody. And Luke, Luke's the guy who writes the book of Acts, right? And so the words sound very similar in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 46, he says, he told them this, this is what's written. This is Jesus speaking. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Talking about Old Testament scripture. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then look at this phrase. You are witnesses of these things. You saw this. You touched it. You experienced it. You heard it. You've experienced Christ. So then you go tell other people about it. And John, in the Gospel of John, he says a little bit different. He says, just as the Father sent me, and well, how the Father sent him to seek and save the lost? He said, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then here he says it. You'll be my witnesses. Then he disappears. And what do they do? They do what most of us would do. They just saw a guy disappear in the sky. So they're standing there staring into the sky. Look at verses 10 and 11. They're looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These are probably angels. That's a description of angels, two men dressed in white, oftentimes in Scripture. Look what the angels say. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Answer, the guy just disappeared. You know, This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. He can come back at any moment. Essentially, I'm going to give you a paraphrase of verses 10 and 11. What are you doing standing here? You have a job to do. Go do your job. And they leave, and guess what happens next? They don't go around telling everybody about Jesus. Because in verse 2, Jesus had told them, you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Holy Spirit doesn't come until chapter 2. And what we have in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, next week we'll talk about chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes. What we're going to look at today is almost like a parenthetical story of an incredibly important decision the disciples had to make of replacing a guy named Judas. If you don't know Judas, he's a bad guy. He betrayed Jesus, he betrayed the disciples, and he killed himself, and he chose, by rejecting Jesus, his path to hell. But the Scriptures promise that there's going to be 12 disciples, they're going to reign on 12 thrones in heaven, and now there's a guy missing, and so they need to replace this guy. And So they have this big decision to make. And what we're going to look at, more than just the end result of the decision that they make, is the process they go through in making this decision as we talk about godly decision-making. We'll read through all the way to verse 26 eventually today, but just read verses 12 through 14 with me right now as we look at this decision. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So after Jesus disappears and the angels tell him, you've got a job to do, they go on a Sabbath day walk from the city. That's a little bit less than a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So they're in this upper room. Some people believe this might be the same upper room where Jesus shared the Last Supper. Some people believe it might be the same upper room where Jesus appeared to them and they were all hit, hiding in the end of the Gospel of John and they're terrified. And that's why he says, my peace I give you, peace be with you, because they're so terrified. We don't know exactly which upper room, but we know it's a large room. And oftentimes the way the rooms are made is that the lower rooms, there's a lot of small rooms, and structurally that's supported on the second or third floor, one big room where people could meet above street level where they wouldn't be interrupted. And here we know there's ended up being about 120 of them in this room. And Luke gives us some roll call of who's there. There's 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. There's another guy that has the name Judas, but it's pointed out that it's not Judas Iscariot. Wouldn't you hate to have that name, by the way? The other Judas. You know, no, I'm not that guy, like every time. Those who were there were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, 
And Judas, the son of James, not that guy, the other guy. And then verse 14, here's what they were doing. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Look at all the people that are here. And verse 15 tells us there were 120 of them gathered together. And what are they doing? They're in prayer. They got a big decision to make. This is a really big deal in the history of the church. This is a really big deal for them at this point in time. This is a huge decision. And as we go all the way through verse 26, I want you to notice something. An angel doesn't show up and tell them what decision to make. The earth doesn't start to shake and God doesn't speak in an audible voice. Here's what you're supposed to do. There's no magical writing on the wall. They don't pray and then all of a sudden they open their eyes and their eyes go right to a passage of scripture and there's the verse and there's the name. Nothing like that happens. There's this huge, huge decision that has to be made though. And instead what we see is the process that they go through in making this decision. I don't know what decision you have to make. But I'm going to tell you, the process is incredibly important. And godly decisions, like their decision, should be preceded with prayer. And that's our first point today. That godly decisions should be preceded by prayer. Notice the point is not that we should pray about our decisions. That's kind of like, yeah, well, of course, of course we should pray about our decisions. If you've been around church very long, you're probably like, well, if I've got a decision to make, I should pray about it. Here's how we oftentimes actually do that, though. We pray for bless or mess. We pray that God will bless something, or we pray once we make a mess. So we pray for bless or mess. Bless usually means this, that we go to God in prayer, and it's not that we've already signed on the dotted line, or we've already you know, officially formalized making a decision, but we've pretty much made our decision of what we're going to do. We've purposed in our heart the decision that we're going to make, and we've determined, we probably even have a plan on how we're going to go about making that decision, how we're going to execute that, and we go to God and we ask him, will you bless what I'm about to do? And so it's almost like we're offering, like, here's the thing that I'm going to do. Would you put like, the divine stamp of approval on it? And why do we do that? Isn't it really because we want it to work out the way that we want it to work? Like, do, like, work this out the right way, because I'm about to, I already know what I'm going to do, and I just want you to kind of, like, sprinkle some Holy Spirit pixie dust on it or something. Like, do something that just kind of makes it work out. And that's so we're asking for blessing. Other times that happens is a lot of times people will ask God to bail them out of a bad decision they've already made. And so you make a decision, you get in the consequences of that decision, and then you go to God as if your prayer obligates him in some way to bail you out, like a get-out-of-jail-free or like a Hail Mary pass or something. Like, I did this stupid thing, now I'm in the consequences of it, and we're so good at this. If you've been around church, we're so good at this, we can make it look like an act of faith. Someone will come to you and say, what are you doing? I'm just trusting God. Because <laughs> you're an idiot. You just got yourself in trouble. You know, you're, now you're thinking that somehow because you're making it spiritual and praying about it, that all of a sudden he's supposed to fix everything that happened. When the reality is, maybe you need to learn a lesson living through some of the consequences of the decisions you made. What we're talking about here isn't praying about blessing, isn't praying about the mess. We're not talking about bless and mess prayers. We're talking about being preceded by prayer. And the idea of that is you go to verse 14, they were continually in prayer. They were constantly in prayer. And so the idea is that you're saturating your life in such a way with prayer that every decision has been prayed for. I'm not saying you pray, you know, should I brush my teeth or my hair first? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you're so continually and constantly in prayer in your life. It's such a regular way of life that everything that you're doing has been saturated with prayer. That godly decision-making should be preceded by prayer. And what happens is that God does a refining process in your heart through the process of that prayer, not just about the circumstances that are out there. And we see it here in this scripture, what they're doing. They're gathered, these 120 believers. We get an idea of who these guys are by the list here, the 11 guys. All strong leaders. All have an opinion, probably how they want things to go. And there's some women there. 
probably a diverse group of women. Maybe some of their wives are there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Uh, probably some other folks, that women with backgrounds, are there. Women that didn't have quite the same backgrounds are there. All have their opinions on how things should go. His brothers are there, which is interesting. Because just six or eight months earlier in the Gospels, we know that his brothers didn't believe in him. Now they're part of the core group that's going to be the beginning of the church. And look at what it says. It says, they all joined together. That doesn't just mean they were assembled together. The statement here implies there's unity amongst this group. And think about that group, men and women, people of different opinions, different preferences, different styles, a bunch of leaders, different people that want things done a different way, but they're all unified, they're all together. Let me tell you something. Whenever you see unity in a group of people like that, God's at work. And I'll tell you just about our church. We've been around five, be six years before too long here. And uh, we've been unified as a church, which is amazing. I mean, somebody pops up every once in a while, has got an agenda, thing they want to do. But for the most part, we've been a unified church, and I praise God for that. But how does that happen? Well, they were looking to God for their guidance. They were joined constantly together in prayer. And these are pretty simple people. And I don't want to spoil the book of Acts for you. We're going to go through the whole thing. But plug your ears if you don't want to know. Uh, They turned the world upside down. And just to give you a perspective of what's happening, there are about a million people in Palestine at this time. Maybe 600,000, real conservative estimate. A million people would be a higher estimate. It's kind of like how when you hear demographics of Raleigh, I've heard demographics, 300,000 in Raleigh, 500,000 in Raleigh, the whole triangle together, 1.2 million. There's about a million people in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. They had 120. That's a lot less than we have sitting in this room right now. 120 people. And they turned the world upside down. How? Through prayer. They're constantly, continually in prayer. Why are they praying like this? Well, you see it's a pattern. You go through the book of Acts, and you'll see in Acts chapter 2, they devote themselves to some things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer. Chapter 4, they pray. They need boldness. They want to be these witnesses. They pray, they get boldness. The, the room shakes. They get boldness in prayer. In chapter 6 and verse 4, you'll see the apostles, they get so busy because the church is growing, things that are happening. They say, we just need to dedicate ourselves to the word and to prayer. What is this prayer? You'll see it's them talking to God. It's communion with the everlasting, eternal God that created them, loves them, wants to know them personally. And he communicates to them too. And read Acts chapter 10. He speaks as well through prayer. It's this regular way of life for the early church. Why? Well, because they're following the example of Jesus. You can look through the Gospels. Every place in the Gospels where Jesus had a major decision to make, you'll see it was preceded by prayer. Every crisis that he faces, you'll see it was preceded by prayer. Right before the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Famous prayer. Father, let this cup pass. If there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. You see him pray when he realizes that his ministry is coming to an end. In John chapter 17, he prays an interesting thing. He says, Father, I've completed the work that you've given me to do. And now my prayer is this. I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. So he's the son praying to the Father in the Trinity that, that his believers would be one like he's one. And then he says, and here's, how, here's why, so that the world would know that you sent me. So that people would see a diverse group of folks with different opinions, different agendas, different preferences, and all that other kind of stuff. And I'm not even just talking about like music. I'm talking about like, like life, all kinds of stuff. And they would see them living in unity, and somehow that shows a non-believer that the Father sent the Son for them. How amazing is that? You see him pray. You see he teaches disciples how to pray. Remember that this prayer, maybe even if you didn't even go to church ever before, you've probably heard this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Separate be your name. Your will be done. What you desire happen here on earth, 
just as it is in heaven, as perfectly as it happens in heaven, I want you to accomplish it here on earth. That's how we pray. You see, before these major decisions, before he selects the original 12 disciples, he goes and he prays. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us, one of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Verse 13, when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. And now here, they have a decision to make. Their decision is, who's going to replace that 12th apostle? And so they do the very thing that Jesus did. They're following his example, that their decisions should be preceded by prayer. You know, sometimes I told you people will say statements like, why doesn't God do what he did in the Bible? Why doesn't he do that kind of stuff? Let me ask you this. Do we pray like they did in the Bible? Do, do we go to him like this? I mean, we have decisions to make. We don't have to decide who the 12th apostle is going to be. Those guys died a long time ago. But you've got decisions to make. You wrote stuff down on your paper. We've got decisions to make as a church. We're going through a building program. We have decisions to make with that. We plan to add elders this year, some new elders. And so we've got decisions to make with that. Do we make decisions the way they made decisions? Do we pray like they prayed? Because I think a lot of times we think, well, we don't really need... I mean, we're so much more advanced than they are. We've got so many more resources than they had, right? I was thinking about that this week. Think about how many resources we have as Christians. You ever been to a Christian bookstore? It can be a funny cultural experience. Uh, But there's a lot of resources there. Go to a Christian bookstore. We've got books on everything. Exercise, there's a book that has Bible verses in it on exercise. Sports, I don't care if it's football, basketball, baseball, you pick a sport, there's a book there on that with Bible verses in it that somehow they don't even have hockey. They're by the verses that go with the hockey, verses that go with football, and verses that go, you know, should you buy a Toyota or a Honda? And there's like verses that people are using. There's like, we got books on like everything. You can imagine books on, you know, different love languages, got books on marriage, got books on debt, got books on exercise, got books on everything. We got all kinds of resources. Even if you don't want to buy a book, we have this thing called the internet. And you can say, if you have a question, you just type it in on Google. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And you get an answer. If it's on the internet, it's got to be right, right? I'm just kidding, by the way. Uh, Wikipedia, great source. For those of you who are wondering, that's sarcasm. <laughs> just teasing. It's not working. I won't do that again. Third service, good. We don't have uh, But <clears throat> at any rate, I was thinking about this week, all the resources we have, and almost anything that's been created, we've Christianized in some way. And so I was thinking, eventually, we're going to have a Christian smartphone. And so then we can ask, like, Christian Siri, like, where should I go to eat? And it'll be like a Bible for it. Here's a proverb. It was like a thing. And it goes, it'll happen. At some point, it will happen. But the point is that we get to the place where we don't think we need to pray because we have all these other resources. It's like we're so much more advanced than all that other stuff. And so then we treat prayer like it's, I don't know, a therapeutic technique, some self-talk that we, and it just doesn't really do anything. And you know this is true in your heart. When someone says to you, you share something that's going on in your life, and they say, I'll pray for you, and you don't say this out loud, but in your heart you think to yourself, why don't you do something? I wish you to actually help, as if praying's not doing anything. And so essentially, we'll say, thank you, but essentially we're saying, thanks for nothing. And we're at that place where we feel like prayer doesn't really do anything. And some of you, you want to pray more, and you'd like to pray more. And I'll tell you, like J.D. talked about at the beginning of the service, we've got some groups that we're starting. Our encounter groups, you just the insert that's in there. Encounter groups for us are groups where we want people to encounter the living God so they'd see Him accurately and respond appropriately to Him. Two of the new ones you'll look on there are prayer groups, one for men, one for women. So you're interested in praying together with people more, there's an opportunity for you to do that. Because you know what prayer actually is? It's not helpful self-talk, it's not therapeutic, and it's not a waste of time. It's the eternal, everlasting God who created you wants to have communion with you. And something powerful happens when you pray to him. 
The scriptures tell us in James chapter 5 that the prayer of a righteous man, that's a person who's been right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It has an effect. It actually changes stuff, and it's a powerful thing. And James is a great book. You look at it on prayer. In James chapter 4 and verse 2, he says this statement. It's just been so meaningful to me in my life. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet. You'll do whatever you need to do to make your thing happen. But you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. We don't even ask him. And you read a verse like that and you think to yourself, well, then I'll just ask him and then I can get what I want, right? The next verse, just so you can go back and study this yourself, says that then you don't have because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend it on yourself. And you miss the very point why I have you here on earth, which is to be my witness. See, so you, you, you there has to be a, this powerful and effective, right? And we're all messed up inside. Do you know what happens when we pray? Not only does it impact circumstances and the stuff that's happening out here, he does a work in us. J. Edmund Orr is a revival historian. I read him this week saying this statement, that every revival that's ever happened in human history, the book of Acts, America, anywhere in the world, has been preceded by prayer. Do you know where God wants to first do a revival? We pray for our city. We talk about reaching the city for Christ. He wants to do a revival in us, in our hearts, and in our lives. But that's an internal work. And what we oftentimes get caught up on is like the type of stuff that we'd write down on a piece of paper when I ask you that question. I don't know what you wrote down, so I'm not poking on you. But we want to know about like who we're supposed to marry, where we're supposed to go to school, what job we're supposed to take, where we're supposed to live, all that stuff that's out here. And God's trying to do a work in us. It's like some of us uh, begin exercising for the new year, right? Start going to the gym. Those of you who go to the gym regularly, you're frustrated because it's January and the place is packed, right? You're waiting for February. <laughs> the place clear back out again. And so, you know, what happens is you go back and you start working out. If you haven't worked out in a long time, it hurts, right? You get sore. All of a sudden, it's like, man, I didn't know I had muscles in my ankle. You know, it's like just stuff's happening in your body. And if you're really out of shape, you've got to go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you what's happening in your body. Well, I started watching uh, last week uh, The Biggest Loser. I don't know if you've seen that show or not, but I've got a friend who I went to college with. He's on that show, and so I wanted to watch, got interested so I could cheer him on. It's Big Mike, this biggest guy that's on the show. And a friend of mine, I was hoping that he'd do well. And what happens is they pick 15 people for this show, out of like hundreds, probably thousands of people that apply to go on the show. And they pick these 15 people, and then they interview them and they ask them, why do you want to come on the show? And it's interesting. You see the different statements different people give. Some of them, you know, I just don't feel good at a self-image about myself, so I want to lose the weight so I can be more confident. Um, you know, I want to be a better dad. That's what my friend said. Um, I want to be able to, you know, get married. I want to do, and there's all this stuff, and it has to do with their circumstances that they talk about. Then they go and they work out, and they get worked out. I mean, I, I hadn't watched this before. People are throwing up, people are passing out, people are quitting, like leaving the show already, like it just started, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, wow, like this is intense stuff, it's like weight loss boot camp that these people are going through, and partway through the week what they do is they have a meet with a doctor. The doctor brings them in, and the doctor says to them, not how much they weigh, how they look, nothing about self-image and all that other stuff, he says, let me tell you what's happening inside your body. He starts to share with them, they did some studies on them, took their blood, said, look at all the fat that's in your blood. And then tells another one, uh, do you know that when you sleep that you actually don't breathe for almost a minute at a time? So you're going to go to sleep and not wake up some point if you don't lose weight. The stuff that's happening out here is actually to impact the stuff that's happening in here. My friend was told, who's 34 years old, he was told as a 34-year-old man, he said the arteries in your neck are like the arteries of a 79-year-old man. He didn't know that. He couldn't know that. He's going there. To try and lose some weight. You can see the weight. You can see the stuff to the side. Do you see how this is like prayer? We can see the circumstances that we want impacted. And we go to God. And what God does is like a physician that comes in and he starts working on our souls. And he works on our hearts. 
He brings revival in us. Every godly decision should be preceded with our life should be so saturated with prayer that everything's impacted by prayer. So do you pray? And you look at the decision that you're going to make, whatever those decisions are in 2013. You make 5,000 a day. What role does prayer play in that? Not just will you pray about it, God bless this. Not just, God, will you pray to fix this if I mess it all up. But is prayer such a continual, constant part of your life that every decision is preceded by prayer? Godly decisions are preceded by prayer. But not only are they preceded by prayer, they're informed by the Scriptures. That's our second point, that godly decisions must be informed by God's Word. And that's what you see Peter do next in this passage in verse 15. So they're at this prayer meeting and everybody's praying and we don't know exactly what they pray, but we can infer what they pray based on what Peter says next. Look at what he says. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers, the scriptures, and so he goes to the scripture, the word. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Might be what some of them are praying about. Why? Why did you have this happen? Confused questions. Why did you allow? Did you cause? Was this your plan? And then Peter says to them in very pastoral terms, he was one of our number. He shared in this ministry. Verses 18 and 19 are a little bit gory. It's Luke, the historian, giving us some information. Peter probably didn't say this to the group, but Luke's filling in some details. And Matthew, we're told that Judas hung himself. And here we get some more of the details. The rope probably broke. It says, with the reward that He got Judas from his wickedness. Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. This was common knowledge in that time. So they called the field, in their language, a kildimah. That's the field of blood. Then Peter speaking again, and he quotes here from the scriptures. Psalm 69, 25 is the first one. He says, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. In other words, God knew this was going to happen. He predicted it a long time ago. He wasn't surprised by what took place with Judas. And, and then he quotes from Psalm 109, verse 8, May another take his place of leadership. And then we have a decision to make. Therefore, it is necessary to choose, verse 21. It's necessary for us to make a choice. We have a decision to make, but that decision should be guided by the Scriptures, informed by the Scriptures, and that's why he turns to the Scriptures. To really understand what's happening here, though, you've got to put yourself in the place of these folks because we hear Judas, we hear bad guy. Just natural. It's just, he's like the villain of all villains, right? That's why no one names their baby Judas. Anybody, if you named your baby Judas and you're a guest, I'm really sorry, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But if you, can you just imagine, like somebody names their baby Judas and they drop him off at the nursery. Here's our baby. Oh, what's your baby's name? Judas. <laughs> Let's put him over here. We don't want to get any of that. Like it's, it's kind of the mentality towards Judas. He's just so bad. When we hear Judas, we hear bad guy. Remember, these folks, this was their friend. This was their brother. Peter talks about what he was like in their ministry in verse 17 when he says, he was one of us. We shared in our ministry. That means we pre- you know, Peter preached and then Judas preached and then Judas preached and then Thomas preached and then and they went on, and, and Judas healed people. And they had meals together and they laughed together and they cried together. And there are these people here that are gathered. There's 120 of them. Some of them are the wives of the apostles. Judas' wife might be in this group. His kids might be there. For some of them, he was husband. For some of them, he was dad. What do you think it's like for Peter to talk about Judas? He's a fellow betrayer. Things worked out different for Peter, though. He repented and experienced God's grace. Judas made a different decision. He probably identified with Judas. There's pain here. And so what Peter does when he stands up to speak the scriptures to them, 
isn't just saying we have a decision to make. This isn't just a business meeting. He's showing them the scriptures are a thing for comfort. The scriptures are used for guidance. And why is it that the scriptures comfort us and guide us? Why are the scriptures so special? Why is it when somebody, you know, is sick and they, they want healing, they put scriptures all over their house? Why is it when, when godly people have big decisions to make, they'll, they'll go to the scriptures and see what the scriptures say? What's so special about this book? Like, what is it? Is it because it's great literature? Because it really is, isn't it? I mean, think about it. 66 books, 40 authors, all one coherent theme all the way through, and all these different types of scripture. You've got law, you've got uh, poetry, you've got narrative, you've got epistles, you've got just letters that are written to people, you've got direct statements, you've got proverbial pithy statements, and it all flows together with one coherent message and doesn't contradict each other. That's great literature. That's not why this book is so special. Is it because you think about other great literature and you think, you know, somebody writes a romance novel, it's a great romance novel, somebody writes a business book and it's a great business book. But usually they hit on one thing, one book. And you've got a book here that covers every area of our lives. Our thoughts, what we were like in creation, before creation, what we were like. Every decision we'll ever make, the desires of our hearts, the good ones, the bad ones, the ugly stuff, there's victory, there's defeat. It's very honest, the scriptures it talks about romantic love. It talks about family love. It talks about brotherly love. It talks about business relationships. It talks about with your coworkers, with your employees, with your boss. Every kind of relationship you can imagine, your, your spouse, your kids, everyone. It talks about humanity. It talks about divinity. That's not what makes this book so special. So what is it? Go back to verse 16. Peter says it. Chapter 1, verse 16. He stood up and he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. That's what makes the scriptures so special. It's God speaking to us. It's not just something that was written down in historical account, although it's that. It's not just great literature, although it's that. It's not just that it touches on every area of life. It does that, but it's God speaking to us. Well, how is that? There's 40 these men authors, these 40 guys that wrote this stuff. Peter tells us later in this book, it says, men, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote down what God told them to write down. So the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David, the king, as he's writing these psalms. And so he's referring to the psalms there. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks. And that's why the scriptures are a place we oftentimes go when we need guidance, a place we go when we need comfort. You ever need guidance or comfort? When you think about your decisions, think about your life, you know, different things in your life. I think about my life last week. I got sick. I had a man cold. If you don't know what a man cold is, let me tell you what a man cold is. A man cold is when one of the, the male species has a general cold and they think the world is going to end. That's a man cold. And I had one of those. I was walking out of church. One of my friends knew that. He said, how are you doing last Sunday after church? And I said, I'm about 90%. I'm doing a lot better. But I'm a big baby, I said. And the female that was sitting next to him, young lady, she said, all men are like that. So I'm just assuming that everybody's like this. But I'll tell you, I got sick and I didn't know where I was coming from. I went to bed the night before. I felt fine. Seven o'clock in the morning. Cookies, like just tossing them. They're just going everywhere, right? It's bad news. And my wife is a nurse, but she's also a germaphobe. So what my wife does, while I'm in the bathroom throwing up, I'm going to come back and get in bed, right? I come back out there, the bed's stripped. Like there's no sheets on the bed. I still have it, okay? I don't know what it is, but it was bad. And I was confident I was dying. And I'm pretty confident it wasn't one virus. It was like a multi-stranded virus, it's like the smallpox mixed with bubonic plague, mixed with some bird thing. Like it was bad news what was happening inside my body. And I just wanted people to care. 
And I went out there at the bed strip, and I just lay down back on I just lay on it again, and I start to proceed doing a chorus of moans that my wife could hopefully hear in the other room. Ah! So every once in a while, I was like, somehow that made me feel better. I just wanted her to know. After I did that for a couple hours, I look over, and my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter standing there, just straight face, looking at me. I look up. I said, hey, what's going on? She said, mom wants to know if you want the sheets back on the bed. And I'm thinking to myself, now's my chance. And I said to her, tell mom, I said, ah! It's like the worst cow noise I could make, right? She just stands there and looks at me. She says back to me, I need a yes or a no. <laughs> Can I get some attention, please? I just, want, I just want someone to pay attention. I just want someone to care. I, want, I was in one of those moments of like, I just, just show me you care. And my wife did a great job taking care of me. But in that couple hours, I was just, this is like miserable. I just, I want some comfort. I told my wife later, our daughter's awesome, okay? She's a great girl. I said, but, but she should never be a nurse. That's not, that's not her thing. That's just, it's so dry. So like, just matter of fact there. I just wanted some comfort. And sometimes you're at that place where you, you want some comfort. And the scriptures are just that. Because it's God living, speaking to us through the scriptures. He knows what we've been through. He knows what we're going through. He knows what it feels like. A great passage of scripture, if you want to just read about what the scriptures are like, is Psalm 119. It's really long, but it speaks repeatedly about the scriptures. Psalm 119 verse 50 says this, My comfort and my suffering is this, Your promise preserves my life. There are promises all throughout the scripture. Even the book of Leviticus has promises. There's promises to you throughout all of the scriptures. It says, My comfort and my suffering comes from your promises something dynamic that takes place there. The verse right before this is interesting too. He talks about his hope. He says, remember your word to your servant, for you've given me hope. Where does the hope come from? From his word. We know that Jesus himself thought, had a real high view of the scriptures when he's fighting temptation himself. As he's tempted in every way, just like we're tempted, real temptation's taking place and he's face to face with Satan. In Matthew chapter four and verse four, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy when he says, for it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on the very words of God. They're a source of life. But not only are they a source of life, they're living. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter four and verse 12 that they're living and active, sharper than any sword. They'll pierce through the soul, through our thoughts. The scriptures are alive and they're our source of life and they bring us comfort and they also guide us. Back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. He guides our steps. He guides our decisions. He guides our direction through the word. Our decisions must be biblically informed. Every one of them, not just purity. In verse 105 it says this, that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Our decisions should be preceded by prayer but they need to be biblically informed and we don't just get to pick one or the other. These things go together. So we don't get to violate his word and say, but I prayed about it and I feel good about it. Jonah felt really good about his decision. He was the only one sleeping when they were all about to die. Okay, that's not a good reason. It's got to be consistent with the scriptures. And so it's preceded with prayer, informed by the word, and guided by the spirit. Well, that's the last point. Godly decisions must be guided by the spirit. And that's what we see them do next in this passage of scripture. They've got a decision to make. The scriptures make it clear that this happened within God's sovereignty. They can take comfort from that. The scriptures make it clear they have a decision to make, that he should be replaced. And it says in verse 21, Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time. And here we get the qualifications of an apostle. One of the men who's been with us the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism, when Jesus was baptized by John, to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. And so what just happened a few minutes ago for them, 
For one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. They must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection because that's what they're going to go and preach about all through the book of Acts. So they proposed two men. So they did some diligent work here. Out of the 120 people that are there, they picked two guys that meet the qualifications they just talked about. So they picked two men. So they're not just, because in a minute we're going to talk about something that's going to happen here. They're not just randomly doing this. They've done the hard work. They picked two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, that's kind of a cool name, and Matthias, and then they prayed, they pray again, they pray specifically about this decision, and here's why, Lord, you know everyone's heart, in other words, you know stuff, I don't know, you know stuff about every decision I'm going to make, I don't know, and we don't know people's hearts, only God knows that, says, Lord, they meet the qualifications on their resume, they both meet the qualifications, but you know their hearts, you know who's going to handle this office the best, you know what's going to take place here, and so we go to you in prayer. Show us, though. Speak to us in prayer. Show us which of these you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. By his own decision, he decided where he's at. Now we've got a decision to make. Will you show us the decision? And what we see here is they're trying to be guided by the Spirit, and it's a spirit of humble trust. And that's what we have to have. It's a spirit of humble trust that God will guide us and that he will direct us through that prayer, through his word, and by his Spirit. Now, what I'm about to read to you, the next verse, if you haven't read ahead, some of you are going to go, well, that seems like random chance. Because look what it says next. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. <laughs> now, what casting lots is, is probably what they did, and there's lots of different ways they could have done this, but probably what they did is they took two stones, they put names of both men, Justice on one stone, Matthias on the other, they put those stones in a jar, they shook the jar until one of the stones fell out. Whichever stone fell out, that was the guy. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like kind of like rolling the dice or like just put two darts up, you know, dartboards, pictures, they didn't have pictures then, but pictures of Justice on one, Matthias on the other, we'll throw a dart and see which one it lands on, or just, you know, flip a coin, or it seems kind of random chance to us. Now, to them, this is very cultural for them. This is something that was done throughout the Old Testament in making decisions that were not moral decisions. In other words, it wasn't, should I rob a bank or not rob a bank? That's not how they did that. When they had two decisions that were equal decisions, which is what this appears to be, it appears that both men equally met these qualifications. They've prayed through it. They could probably pick either one of the guys, but they want God to decide. And so what they would do is they would cast lots. And so it's like Proverbs chapter 16 says, this was their mentality. Not that this was random chance, but this was God's sovereignty. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord, that he actually determines which lot would come out. That's their belief. That's the way they would do this. Now, let me say this. There are things in Scripture that are descriptive, and there are things in Scripture that are prescriptive. Descriptive means it describes what they did. doesn't mean we have to do it. Prescriptive means it describes what they did, and it's telling us this is what you should do, like pray continually, which we're also commanded to do in the New Testament, so we know that that's prescriptive stuff. Going to the Scriptures, we're also commanded to do in the Scriptures, so we know that's prescriptive. Here we've got something that's descriptive, something they did, kind of like how they stared into heaven. It doesn't mean we have to stare into heaven. It means it's just something they did. Now, would it be wrong? What the, you know, you, here's what I would challenge you to consider. You've got a big decision to make. Uh, you're going to get married someday, right? And so you're picked, you know, narrow down to six ladies and roll the dice, and it comes up one through six. Whoever's number, you know, roll a number three. Eh, whoever's third on the list, go up to her and say, hey, I rolled the dice. You won. We're getting married. God told me. <laughs> you know, that's how that's going to go, all right? It's not going to go well. 
I'm not recommending this in, in, in a sense like that necessarily. But I'm showing you what they did, but the spirit of what they did is what I want you to see. The principle here is they were humbly trusting the spirit to guide them in this decision-making process, knowing that God knew stuff they didn't know, and so they humbly trust him in the process. This is what they did. They casted lots. It wasn't random chance that they were looking for. They were looking for the spirit to guide them in this process. And so are you. Are you? What do you think about your decision? The thing maybe you wrote down on that piece of paper or other decisions you have to make. Maybe you've thought of other decisions since we wrote those things down. Are you saturating those things in prayer? Are they preceded by prayer? Are they informed by the scripture? Do you go to the scripture and see? What does the scripture say? Because scripture doesn't say to buy a Toyota or to buy a Honda. They didn't have cars back then. But there are biblical principles that guide us. What's the wise thing for you to do? There are decisions to be made. The scriptures talk continually about wisdom, seeking wisdom. The scriptures speak into those things through principle, through narrative scriptures, through direct statements, through commands, and moral decisions are all clearly made for us. And so are your decisions biblically informed? Are they preceded by prayer? And are you guided by the Spirit? And we don't want to just talk about this stuff today. We don't want to just say, here's what you should do. Here's some information for you, like a formula. This isn't a formula for you. All these things work together, and it's a dynamic process in relationship with God. And what we want to do today is actually do this stuff. And so we're going to give you a couple moments as we conclude this morning to pray. And maybe as you sit there, you search through the Scriptures. We want to give you a couple moments to just quiet with the Lord. And we're going to talk to him. The worship team is going to come. They're going to come up here and play some music while we pray. And I'm going to lead us in some prayer as we get started. And then I'll come back and I'll wrap us up. But we want to saturate our lives with prayer. Together, we come together. We've got big decisions to make as a church about elders, about building projects, about different stuff. You've got decisions you wrote down on your paper. Individual things have to happen. We need to pray. We need to pray for revival in our city. And maybe God wants to do a revival in your heart and the work that he wants to do internally on you as we talk about some of this external stuff. And so we're going to go to the Lord and we're going to pray. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be separate and different from any other name on earth because you are different, because you are holy, because you are worthy and righteous, because you care, because you wanted to know us. We know you. Father, may your name be separate and set apart. And will your will be done in each one of our lives, in every circumstance that is written down on paper today or on an iPad today or on a phone today? Will your will be done, please? Whatever you desire to happen, make that happen. Whatever you desire to happen in those who wrote those things down, make that happen. God, provide for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us. And guide us. Lead us not into temptation. Help us to forgive those who've sinned against us. And please forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. And hear our prayers as we cry out to you now.